This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Everybody, welcome to another episode of Outside Looking In, the podcast series wherein I, Samson Folk, talk to 29 other people about the league at large and what they think about the Raptors so that, hey, we can achieve consensus. Everybody wants to know, hey, what do people think of my team? Well, guess what? You're figuring it out watching these and then also sneakily learning about the 29 other teams. This episode, gotta assume everybody's favorite, somebody I podcast with, co-write with, Talk to a very good friend who also happens to be, in my opinion, the, well, in most people's opinion, the best basketball writer in the world. Caitlin Cooper, we're here to talk about the Indiana Pacers and the Toronto Raptors. How are you? I just rolled my eyes a lot of times during that, but I'm just going to accept it and say thank you to the Raptors Republic listeners for listening to me so many times and not being sick of me yet. So I'll just interview myself that way. You, you are well-loved by the, the Raptors Republic readership and listenership, both. They're like two separate entities. Some people are like, you know, there's a divide between readers and listeners online. And then I really love the people who do both, especially people who listen to all these podcasts and subscribe to the website. I've recorded like 12 of these things. I have not yet mentioned that you can subscribe to Raptors Republic. That's how you get my writing this upcoming season, by the way. Um, yes, it costs money. You can get podcasts and stuff for free, but I'm here to tell you, my writing, whether you like it or not, is valued at least somewhat. <laughs> Some people pay. I, I subscribe to it. And I subscribe to your Patreon, which other people can go to as well if they want to learn about the Pacers or basketball in general. Caitlin, we're here to talk about the teams. Ourselves, not as much. I guess we've gone 90-10 uh, <laughs> about that. But regardless, okay, we're here to talk basketball. The Toronto Raptors, uh, I want to get you just started off right now. Do you like that team if Dame gets traded there? First question. A little bit of, little bit of transaction talk that I know you love. Yeah, I mean, I think that they make a lot of the stuff that we talked about in the podcast with Trey when we did the one about offense and spacing. I think Dame fixes a lot of those problems. I mean, not all of them, but in the sense that like I looked up on Second Spectrum before we hopped on here and the Raptors ranked. 21st in the NBA and drawing tags on screens per 100 possessions. That's going to be a lot harder to draw tags without a pull-up threat running pick and roll next year. If you have Dame doing that, that gets a lot simpler. Then you're getting shake action. And when we did the podcast with Evan and I kind of described, you know, the way you could rotate and I don't know which one of the wings would be going out in that scenario, but I'm just going to name them all three because I don't know what the trade mechanics would be here. But the way you could rotate Scotty and Pascal and OG around the pick and roll with, you know, one of them lifting behind the ball and then putting like Pascal above the break so he can attack baseline or middle. That works a lot better with Damian Lillard orchestrating the offense. Also just his off-ball gravity. Like I'm not here to relitigate the Fred thing. I'm not going to do that for your listeners and cause like a, a, you know, an argument in your comment section. 
But like, if you look at the numbers, he did draw a higher percentage of full closeouts than Dennis Schroeder did. So his off ball gravity when he isn't shooting is going to be a trade off, even though Schroeder did get have a higher blow by right and, you know, some of that stuff. So if you have Dame off ball, that also helps with your gap defense. And then also just like, you can almost make the non-shooting a weapon if you have Damian Lillard on the ball as well. So like if you're running a pick and roll, an angled pick and roll between Dame and Jakob and you still have Scotty on the roster, put Scotty at the wing. And then when when they go to low tag, or I mean I should say high tag onto Pirtle, short the pick and roll, and then Dame just runs over to Scotty and it's a wide open DHO. Like those types of things. Now it's to your benefit that nobody's guarding Scotty Barnes. It's there's a lot of different ways to create space on an NBA four. Mm-hmm. Um, they multiply and compound when you have at least a shred of spacing to begin with. You can get a lot more creative. The Dame stuff is really interesting to me. Uh, not so much the the drama of it, but you know the on court applications. I think it's a as far as you know whether you say yes or no to certain deals going out the other side. Um, the Raptors offense would make you know an unbelievable jump with Dame at the helm. He's not just like a talented all-star level guard. He is a guy who has just been the engine of top five offenses over and over and over again, despite not having that talented of supporting casts. He's an unbelievable offensive talent and he would be incubated pretty well, pretty well served um, by the Raptors defense, depending on who goes out, of course, to some degree. That's kind of what I want to talk about for the people who just heard Caitlin, you know, lay out, how the different machinations of the Raptors offense can achieve things. There is a podcast, you know, a couple podcasts we've done, but chief among them, a podcast with her and Evan Gualberto, where we basically try and diagnose everything that could be good or bad with the Raptors offense. It's very uh, in depth. It's very cared for. It's a thoughtful conversation. You will not find a more thoughtful conversation about the Raptors offensive framework or um, potential wins and losses, I suppose. If you want to listen to a very in-depth look at that kind of stuff. What I want to talk about today, though, let's lead with defense. I do want to presuppose that it's Scotty in the starting lineup at point guard. And Schroeder is the guard. You know, we'll talk about Schroeder more. The bull buys you talk about being better on broken plays, perhaps, than Fred will be important. But I'm going to suggest that it's Scotty, Gary, OG, Pascal, Jakob. Talk to quite a few people about that lineup now the Raptors' perspective defense. It seems to me that most people think they have a top five potential on that end of the floor. I'm curious where you think they sit between ceiling and floor as far as what they'll achieve defensively. I mean, I think you have a higher floor with Jakob Pertl in the lineup than you did before they acquired Jakob Pertl. Mm-hmm. And I also think that Dennis Schroeder was stickier at the point of attack when he got traded over to the Lakers than what Fred was last year for the Raptors. Mm-hmm. So that is one edge there that I think will be beneficial. And like I've talked about this a few times. I mean, I think you and I talked about it when you came over to my Patreon in that I've started to get to reframe my idea of defense in that I don't think that a rim protector can be the strongest link in a defensive unit. And people are going to say, well, then why did the Raptors get better when they added Jakob Pertl? And I think in part is because that gave them a finishing piece that allowed them to be more more conservative, but also that their gambles meant more. Like mm-hmm. they still maintain the same turnover rate. It's just, you know, we're not – I like the, the analogy that you used a year ago when you were writing the piece about when it was still Vision 6-9 and you compared it to a fitted sheet, right? And like trying to 
cover the corner and then the other side pops off. That's not as apt to happen when you have Jakob Pertl there. But I then, not to bring it to the Pacers already, but the reason I bring this up is the Pacers have a very good rim protector and they've had a bottom five defense for two years in a row because they don't have the periphery pieces that the Raptors do. They don't have OG on an who can be both proactive and reactive and be positionalist being moved all over the court. They have no one like that. So I'm kind of in a place defensively where like the types of players who I think buoy schemes are kind of those OG on types who we talk about unique movers on offense a lot. Like I think Shea Gilgis Alexander, for example, I think that he moves like a slinky, if a slinky played basketball. Yeah. If you can move uniquely on defense, how can you attack an offense? So people who can break scheme and do a play audible without compromising a scheme, I think those are the people who then solidify, like in the Raptors case, like, yes, it's important to have a rim protector, but who's going to elevate that to a top five defense? It's the other types of people that the Raptors have, and that's why the Pacers aren't haven't elevated out of that yet over the last two years, despite the fact that they have somebody who can depress you know, the field goal percentage at the rim quite well. The fitted sheet thing is kind of funny because if you could, you know, it's about the the collective pressure that the sheet is applying and the anchor points. There are four anchor points. Maybe there's not four on an NBA defense, like four of the five players. And I know some people think of defense in the weakest link type of philosophy. But when you think about Miles Turner being or turning the Indiana Pacers defense from like extremely bad to when he's on the floor, Pretty good. Always, you know, maybe five points better, four points better, six points better. They're, you know, per 100 stuff when he's there. Is that? Not last year. There was no shift. No shift? 2.7. Oh, 2.7, right? Like per 100? Oh, I think it was less than that. Unless mm. you're looking at cleaning the glasses number. Like I, they're playing eight guards a night. Like that's, that's what you got to remember. They're playing eight guards a night and they rank second in blocks. And that was not, that was not a complimentary thing for them to be ranking second in blocks. And that's right. And so like the interesting aspect is like, what are, what are the anchor points without miles? And that's also, we'll talk about it more with the, like the backcourt of Nampard and Halberton and how tenable that is into the future, et cetera, with defense in mind mostly. But it is interesting to think about the Raptors is that they currently, as currently constructed, have just a ton of anchor points. Scotty is not one by himself necessarily, but Pascal Siakam can be a linchpin. OG Ananobi, as you pointed out, is can buoy such a high percentage of your defense. He can muck up actions to move you into the back of the shot clock. He can lock down at the back end of the shot clock. You can put him on a star to suppress shots and also move teams into different types of offensive sets than they usually like to go to. And he, in a pinch, can be a good rotational rim defender. Like all that stuff is tremendous. And Having the safety and more conservative nature of Jakob deeper in the paint means that OG can gamble more without you paying for it on the back end. And so that can also increase the likelihood of the gambles, which he already has a high hit rate on. Those two paired is like just tremendous defense. You love seeing those guys together. Having Pascal Siakam, who had a down year defensively, having Scotty Barnes, who hasn't reached the heights that Pascal or OG or Jakob have, all of that length coming together. It always makes me think of the 2018-19 76ers who, despite not having immense defenders like Tobias Harris, like J.J. Redick, those guys playing a lot of time, it was just a big lineup that continued to make skip passes more difficult. 
that still managed to crowd the nail despite not being like Jason Tatum level defenders. And they had Ben Simmons and they had Joel Embiid and they had Jimmy Butler. And it was like that length and size just meant that it always felt like everybody was operating in a closet when they got downhill. And it, they didn't need the most talented defenders. It was just that size kept you know pressing in on the, the opposing offense. And the Raptors have, you know, they don't have Embiid. They don't have that level of Ben Simmons or Jimmy Butler. But the combination of all those guys in that they'll shrink the floor and they're talented in those smaller spaces defensively, I think sets them up to have one of the top three defensive lineups in the NBA, potentially. And especially once you factor in that, they'll probably have a really good time turning other teams over. The starting lineup, I don't think it'll be good offensively in the half court. Mm -hmm. But defensively, if that is the starting lineup, I think threatens as one of the best defensive lineups in the NBA, which is a cool thing to have. And I think you have a, a decent amount of matchup flexibility there. And the games that I watched, I didn't love using Jakob Pertl as a weak side roamer, but the fact of the matter is that you can do it. You can put OG on an OB on a center if it's a center who's going to run a lot of delay and you want to pressure those types of looks. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I saw them do that against the Lakers and put on an OB on Anthony Davis, which like the Pacers were having to use that a lot last year for various reasons, putting miles, not on swallowing up pick and rolls. So, but they don't really have a four man that they can effectively achieve these heights with, with being able to move people around. So I think it also helps when you can defend in different ways. And, and certainly they were playing Pirtle higher than they were than what Pirtle was playing in San Antonio. When you look at those numbers, like I can't filter it just for his games with Toronto, but it was, it went up by like 20% mm -hmm. um, up to a touch. So, and that helps you force turnovers too, because that's a, that's a key component. Like their defense is pretty critical to them being able to stay alive offensively because they're not doing it. They don't do things in transition the way that the Pacers do. So their ability to force turnovers, get steals, get stops off of the defensive glass is pretty important for them to be able to still be juicing their transition offense next year. When you, because you are poking around on the statistics of the Raptors and obviously every once in a while looking at how other teams, not just the Pacers, fit in. How tenable do you think that that approach is? The Grizzlies do this a lot as well. The Thunder really leaned into it. The, you know, we're going to have some limiting returns offensively, but transition offense is the most gluttonous points per possession thing we could ever hope to achieve, even if we're bad at it. Let's get in there. Let's create a lot of turnovers. Some teams have leaned hard into this. What do you think of that as an approach to try and mitigate less, let's say, half-court fluidity or half-court talent offensively? I think the way that I would word it, because I know you asked me not to do this, but the Pacers were very good at forcing turnovers during Victor Oladipo's first All-Star season. And the difference being there, and I think it's the difference for what happened to the Raptors pre- and post Pirtle is, are you forcing turnovers as the purpose of a scheme or as the product of a scheme? So, after Pirtle, they're forcing them as a product of a scheme. I find mm -hmm. that a lot more tenable than exhausting yourselves and what you're giving up when you don't force the turnover when it's the purpose of the scheme. So I think that's the way that I would delineate that. Yeah, that's, that's what you're asking me. That's a, that's a perfect way to say it. It's you don't have to bet on this happening. You know, this was this is something that I talked about with Joe Wolfond. He wrote the first piece on it. He did a great job of you know, getting quotes from around the league and from the Raptors themselves about how the Raptors were kind of artificially, artificially inflating their, you know, possession numbers. And this was something that Nick Nurse talks about. Well, you win the possession battle by five, you win like 75% of games 
It's like, that's great. But also when that is the intention is winning the possession battle by five, you're missing out on all the other things that were passively happening. Or maybe we're set out as like a more, this was the goal the team was looking for. And they passively, because they were so good, found their way to a plus five possession differential. And the Raptors kept finding that possession differential and not winning by as much, and then eventually not really winning that much at all, having to trade for Pirtle and finding their way back to it is like, good. That's the thing about deriving information or meaning from the numbers. It's almost like Nick Nurse was just looking at it as a data entry rather than... You're reverse engineering to it. Yes, exactly. And so when you reverse engineer, it's like you can create the outcome, but that outcome isn't the only outcome you're achieving on the floor. There's like six other things, six other meaningful statistics that are being played out at a time. And those are the ones that are changing rapidly or, you know, there's quite a large variable for the Raptors relative to the other big possession differential teams. The Grizzlies are a good example of that too, is like they're working from a place of strength, creating those turnovers. And the Raptors are doing it from sometimes a place of weakness the, the best example would be, you know, Gary Trent Jr.'s on-ball fervor is good to create, you know, the the steal percentage and all that kind of stuff. But he, he led the league in their good year, 2021-22, in like blow-bys on the perimeter. And, and, you know, like bad gambles. And so you get these numbers that appeal to your overall defensive ethos, but you're doing it in a way that's just not really tenable. Now, of course, you switch over to Jakob Pertl as the backstop and it's, OG Ananobi is the guy who you kind of send out to be like the gamble heavy dude. And not only are you giving up less on the back end, but you're probably converting more at the front end too. And that still applies for Gary, I suppose, with, you know, if, if it's OG at the nail, Jakob down floor or something like that, that all helps. But the Raptors finally working from a place of strength, I think is the reason they were fifth or sixth in defensive rating since Jakob came over. The reason why they played still with Fred at that point in time at a 47-48 win pace. And the reason that despite losing Fred, getting nothing for him, you look at the the bones of this team and you say, that could be a top five defense, maybe even a little bit higher. And that's what this team has to bet on. And I don't know what else you bet on, but it's a good place to start given the, the I guess, the structure of the roster. The bones are good for a defense. I guess I would say the only question that I would have then is, is, you know, the merging the two ends of the floor as one and you're having this transition offense. And I remember that I tweeted after the final game that the Pacers played against the Raptors last year, Pacers had like 18 turnovers. They gave up a million offensive rebounds to the Raptors. Tyrese Halliburton didn't play. Scotty Barnes didn't play. The Pacers win this game. The Raptors converted like none of those turnovers into points. Like that's an indictment of your, of your, team building at that point in time like it is kind of important and this is something that I'm looking at with regards to the Pacers this year and depending upon what happens with Buddy Heald you know what you do in transition kind of depends on being able to fill lanes with people who can shoot so this this is we shall see this was you and I the conversation we kept having is like the Raptors are achieving things they want to achieve and the Pacers are doing that classic thing in basketball where you make a shot And somehow, despite the Raptors looking at the four factors and being like, we're winning, we're winning the four factors, the Pacers are like, three-point shot go in, baby. 
That's how we do it. And they, they kept beating the Raptors because they were like, hey, we're going to make shots. That's our plan. And while neither team was impressive over the course of last season, you know, Pacers fans, it's a cheaper team. Um, maybe to some there's a little bit more young talent on there, all that kind of stuff. Who knows? You know, optimism is good. I'm glad fans have that for each team. But the Raptors were the expensive team who had just been in the playoffs and went to game six, albeit after being down 3-0 against the 76ers. And it's like this team is supposed to build momentum and they lost a whole bunch of it. Trying to replace that and get it back, merging the two ends of the floor. I can't remember what coach talked about it last season or maybe two years ago that there is no end of the floor anymore. It's just the floor. Um, I do wonder how Darko Rajkovic tries to make that happen. If anybody wants to know in depth, there is a podcast about it that uh, Caitlin and I did with Evan Gilberto. Let's talk about the Pacers. I do, first and foremost, Nemhard, Hal Burton, they played 2,200 possessions together last year. Um, I think like 75th percentile or 74th percentile offensive like points per possession pretty great and the defense was really bad largely because of transitional lineups they played without miles and also because of by the numbers uh too much uh Jalen Smith at the four I'm curious what you think about that backcourt going forward because as we've talked about on your Patreon Tyrese and Nemhard are like wizards and fantastic at implementing offense on that side of the floor but you have to try and figure things out on the defensive side. So let's keep it going, I guess, in that vein, talking about defense to start this podcast. What do you think about that backcourt going forward? That's a complicated question to explain. Um, Andrew got on the floor last year, turned himself into a key starter from a second round pick, mainly because of his defense. That's how he found his way out there first. Now this summer, they signed Bruce Brown. You're not paying Bruce Brown $22.5 million to come off the bench. Like, I just, I see no situation where that occurs. Benedict Matherin is already on record saying that he expects that he's going to have a larger role and be the starting three. You can connect dots with some of the stuff that's going on with Buddy and assume that Buddy's going to be coming off the bench. So, if you're starting Tyrese, Ben, and Bruce, and then a, probably a camp battle between Obi Toppin and Jarris Walker, Andrew Nemhart is not starting anymore. TJ McConnell is still on this roster. If Andrew Nemert's coming off the bench and playing with that unit, you're not playing TJ McConnell off the ball. So they go to summer league. Andrew and Ben both play two games. Andrew had a terrific summer league. Tyrese Halliburton confirmed this at his own camp. I tweeted in the first game. I was like, Andrew just played the entire first quarter and he doesn't need to play any more quarters. Just that degree of pacing in the pick and roll, moseying to his spots. He plays slow in a really wonderful way, but can also push the pace when he needs to in transition. Defensively, I wrote a piece where you could overhear a lot of the various terminology that the Pacers were using. And there was a lot of changes from last year. And one of the main things you could hear was good drew, good drew, because Andrew, Andrew's the type of player that you can be up 20 in a summer league game. And he's still, you know, clamping somebody at the end of a shot clock. So, you know, he has a really terrific summer league and his reward for that. Not that summer league means everything. We're talking about two games here. His reward for that might be a smaller role, depending upon what happens with some of the other players on the roster. It's going to be Ben's spot to lose is the way that I envision this. And I envision that there's going to be a lot of changes coming for Ben in year two by comparison to the way he was guarded last year. 
So I guess to answer your question in a short, succinct way, I would say if Ben takes step forward in that spot and Andrew doesn't, whether that's because he's playing next to TJ or he just himself doesn't take steps forward, then this is kind of a moot point. But if the reverse occurs, and let's say they trade TJ as part of this Dame deal, they get in as a third or a fourth team, TJ goes to Phoenix, let's say. I'm just speculating here, people. I'm not dropping any knowledge here. Um, and Andrew's playing as the backup point guard. And let's say Ben struggles with some of the adjustments that I think are, are going to happen. And Andrew plays better. Then it's, then it's a lot more interesting talking point. And then we can get to what you're saying in terms of, I think Andrew pays, pairs really well with Tyrese defensively because you don't, people watch the world cup. You don't want Tyrese doing a lot of, uh, tracking shooters like Obst around the court. You don't want Tyrese doing a lot of point at the tag. That's why the Pacers don't have him doing that most of the time. Like if you play a team like Cleveland, this is the best example I can give. Like last year, Tyrese would have been assigned to a Coro. This year, he will most likely be assigned to Max Struess, which means he's playing a little bit less aerial ace. Like the best thing Tyrese does is sticks his arms in passing lanes. He has pretty good skills for anticipation. So that's going to read a little bit differently when you make that change. But now like last year, it would have been Neesmith and Nemhard defending Garland and Mitchell. Now you're looking at Bruce Brown will take one of them, probably Garland, because you don't really want Ben going through a lot of screens. And then now the expectation is going to be on Benedict Mather and, hey, go out there and guard Donovan Mitchell. I think that's going to be a pretty tall order. Um, and it's different now because you don't have two defenders in the starting lineup. And not that the Pacers were a good defensive team. They were not for a number of reasons. But – I think defensively it makes a lot of sense for Tyrese to having Andrew out on the floor in the future. And then I don't think that Rick Carlisle shies away from having more than one point guard on the floor. They were mm -hmm. pretty decent in the minutes when they had two of Tyrese or Andrew or TJ playing at the same time. So I don't think that's something necessarily that they would shy away from if Andrew and, and Tyrese are both out there. And I personally think it could be to Tyrese's benefit at times to play off the ball. Like an example that I often like to give is they played the Miami Heat. He had one point in one of those games, then they went down and played again. And Tyrese is kind of the person that if he struggles in a matchup, he's probably going to figure it out by the next game. So he scores 43 and hits the game winner, mainly because he's hitting the, the, the switch pocket and the heater playing back off of him. Then in the third game, it kind of turns around and they end up blitzing him when he gets weak matchups. But the point being is you don't really want Tyrese Halliburton going head on against somebody like Bam Adebayo in space. That's not really a strength to be driving a switch. So something that you can do is get that switch move Tyrese and Bam away from the ball, give the ball to Andrew, let Andrew drive toward Bam. The inclination for most bigs when the ball is coming toward them is to help on the ball, pass it to Tyrese, and now Tyrese gets to attack a switch with a closeout. That's not super feasible with Benedict Mathern as much as it is with Andrew Nemhard. So again, like just to summarize, it will be Ben's spot to lose. If Ben plays well and Andrew doesn't, then it's a moot point. If the reverse happens, I think it's interesting. I'll put it that way. That is that is the very interesting aspect too. Is that Andrew is two and a half years older than Ben? There's that. But when you, I know, like Nemhard is an impressive defensive guard. Hal Burton maybe not so much. But when you look at Miles Turner, Nemhard, there's a lot of good defense there. But sandwiched between those guys is a mix of a lot of the time Buddy Heald, Matherin, and Hal Burton. It could maybe look really good. If Matherin was the guy who gets leapfrogged, and I know, I, well, actually, I don't know what the Indiana fandom thinks of the Nemhard versus Matherin, like prospect versus prospect, who ranks higher. But it's an interesting conversation because Nemhard has been so good at the 
statistic, the things that are statistically captured and the things that aren't typically statistically captured and has, as you said, as a, you know, Raptors fans are happy with what Christian Coloco did as a second round pick. And his season was unbelievably underwhelming relative to what Nemhard has been able to do. Nemhard is one of those guys who you look at what's happening on the floor and you're like, it just clicked for this guy. He's already leapfrogged. I think objectively so many guys drafted ahead of him and so much so that it's, it's perfectly fine to look at like, Oh, they got a lottery talent in the second round. It's, it's early, but you can tell. Oh yeah. Easily. Yeah. I mean, I think Nemhard. Yeah, no, because I mean, one thing that I would point out if people do like Nemhard, since he is from the Toronto area that like (laughs) when I said earlier, well, I, I actually do have people email me from, from Toronto and be like, oh, I really like Andrew. I Gold medal, Andrew. 2024, and part of the guard rotation. Let's go. I, I was upset about that. <laughs> Anyways, um, no, that when I talked earlier about being able to play in a play audible scheme without compromising the scheme, Nemhard is probably the best person on the Pacers roster at doing this, and it's very underrated. And like they played the final game of the season against the Knicks, so it's like a pick and roll between like Quickly and Isaiah Hartenstein. And O'Shea Brissett's guarding Hartenstein at the time. And, like, they'll switch the ball screen. So now Nemhard's guarding Isaiah Hartenstein. He'll front him. And then on the penetration, like, when O'Shea starts to get beat on the perimeter, it becomes switched appeal. So Nemhard will make the read and jump out to the ball, which makes perfect sense for that matchup because quickly as somebody who's going to attack off the dribble, Hartenstein's a non-threatening big. And now you've just defended a pick and roll two versus two while also eliminating the mismatch. And he just did that on instinct. Like, that was not something they did the entire rest of the game. So he operates on instinct and will make little reads like that. And sometimes you'll watch it back and you'll be like, you know, that's something that you could have probably apply in a wider sense. And that might be really effective. So he does a lot of little things with peel switching and other stuff that you just, you don't see other people on the roster do, which tells me that like, while it might be something that the Pacers communicate at times, I don't think it's something they enter into a game and say like, this is our scheme tonight. He just he just makes the read and has that degree of feel on defense, which we don't a lot of people don't talk about feel on defense that much. But for guys like OG Ananobi and Andrew Nemhard, and I'm not saying Andrew Nemhard's like an all defensive candidate right now, but he's very good. And I don't I don't think that that always reads completely with him. But it's it's tough. Like guard defense is really hard because the interesting stats are like just hard to get to. Most most people don't have the. Oh, how often is this guy like stab stepping for lock and trail? How how often is this guy like getting the arm and pushing through the screen and like just blowing stuff up? Like it's just that kind of stuff is like just film, film, film. Maybe some of it ends up on second spectrum, right? And second spectrum is just like who who has access to that? Not very many people, especially talking about the game for public consumption. It's it's really tough to capture. And it has mostly been captured in in steals and steal percentage um, over these past few years. It's it's really tough. The interesting thing is that like when you look at the stats, and it's kind of what I referenced was like, hey, the defense isn't really working. What's going on with the backcourt? The I guess attention shifts to the wings. And with Indy, as you've mentioned, like the wings are sometimes just guards. The Raptors are a team where oh, the guards are wings. What do you, I talked about this a little bit in, in a past episode, but what do you think about like teams managing to produce one position repeatedly and like, oh, we, I guess we just have a lot of wings or like with Portland, the conversation I have is like, oh, we have Dame, Scoot, Shaden Sharp and Anthony Simons. 
you know, maybe maybe some people like Keon Johnson. Like, we have a lot of guards. The Pacers is like, oh, we have Buddy Heald. We have Benedict Matherin. We have Nemhard. We have Halliburton. Like, what do, you, what do you think drives that? That people just keep on, like, stacking similar, I guess, um, styles or positions? I mean, I think in the case of the Pacers, some of it's probably driven by Rick Carlisle because he likes having as much skill on the floor as possible. Like that's in part why I wasn't surprised when they pivoted away from Jalen and because everyone was cross-matching that and that's detrimental to Miles. And it was harder to cross-match it if you play Aaron Neesmith at the four, which is something to look out for next year when they're playing Walker and Toppin. But that they um, the Neesmith lineup was really good. Just poking around on the numbers. Like it, the, it started to show some cracks during the time when Tyrese was out, and not only for reasons that Tyrese was out, but I mean, they realized, hence why they went and traded for Toppin, and hence why they drafted Jarris Walker, that they needed to have more size on the floor. There was no secondary rim protection. I mean, I've used this as an example before, but one of the cracks that I'm referencing, they played the Oklahoma City Thunder. And Miles in that game, because they had to keep him low because they're giving up so much size everywhere else. He's assigned to Josh Giddy. And Josh Giddy posted him outside of the lane so that he would have to pay attention there. And then they ran split cut for Shea above it. Buddy Heald's the low man now. Like you were saying earlier, like about people they play in between, there's games where Buddy Heald is pre-switching Tyrese Halliburton out of actions. There are games where Buddy Heald is defending Jarrett Allen because like literally he guarded Kevin Durant. He guarded Kristaps Porzingis because they don't want Miles Turner defending in space because he has to stay near the basket and because they don't want to give up lobs. So these are the types of cross matches that they're dealing with. And like, I've said it too, that like what they were trying to do schematically didn't reconcile with the numbers. Like if you were to just write down a list of like, okay, here's what they do defensively. They have a very exaggerated presence at the nail. They'll go switch to blitz. They'll double the post when they have a mismatch. They'll, you know, on down the line, they'll they'll peel switch if somebody gets beat. These are all mechanisms that are meant to keep the ball out of the paint. And yet they were bottom five in rim frequency, bottom five in paint points allowed. Like, and some of that's their rebounding, but even this, their first chance defense would rank 25th. So that's why I said blocks are like having, being the team with the second most blocks really wasn't a feather in their cap. My, my analogy for blocks is it's like a mouse trap. <laughs> it is like, you're happy when a mouse trap works. You don't want to have to use it. You don't want to have to need it. Like ideally the ball never gets to that place. It gets to that place a lot against the Pacers because there really wasn't too many go down the line lists of people that were wrong. If you're making a scouting report of who you should target in space, like the, the, the first list was place very long. I ever looked at as a prospective place to rent in Toronto. I did not end up renting it. And the guys who were renting there said, don't tell like the landlord we said this, but this place is terrible. Because I asked him before I went out of there, I was like, how's the, how's the, like, the landlord situation? He's like, he won't fix anything. We've been waiting like four months for X and Y. You know, slumlord stuff, of course. But they wouldn't let me go into a room to look at part of the apartment because they're like, there's a bunch of mouse traps in there. I was like, good. Okay, noted. Um, another Samson story that I will use to segue us into offense so I played yesterday, pickup basketball. I wore the Caitlin Cooper jump passes are good now shirt. And I was running a pick and roll. Trey was on the 45 on the weak side. Uh, Trey is quite tall, athletic, good at basketball. I ran a pick and roll. I come around the edge. There's a guy waiting in the paint. There's no three seconds in pickup. And it's tough to get a guy in pickup to move out of the paint or commit. So what do I need to do when he's splitting the difference between Trey's now 45 cut and the guy who's rolling to the rim 
is I need him to step towards the roller. Jump. Now the decision is being made. I'm looking at the roller. It's a push pass to the 45 and jump passes are good now. I get to I get to reference the shirt. We all have a good giggle about it. This shirt, its namesake comes from Tyrese Halliburton, who is a wonderful point guard who, you know, guides offense to like tons of wins over and over again. You mentioned having trouble beating the switch. You mentioned, you know, the framework around him. I got to know how much is left of the framework, how much is left of the player development on his own side to being like one of the three best offensive orchestrators in the NBA. What meat is left on the bone for Tyrese? To clarify, I said that I didn't want a lot of Tyrese spinning his tires in isolation against switches. And in part, like just to give people a number, Julius Randle used more possessions in isolation last season as an individual than the Indiana Pacers did. That's and awesome. that's be that's because they're not they're not an isolation heavy team. They prefer to get to the next action, and the primary means in which they do that is if Tyrese does get a switch on the perimeter, Buddy Heald goes and ghosts it. It's just automatic. Like that's just what their chemistry is, and then he's going to leak out into space, and that creates just a little bit of hesitation, so Tyrese can get into the lane. But he made a lot of strides in that area too last year, finding hacks for how he was going to beat it. And I think we talked about that mm-hmm. when we did the outside looking in pod because you asked me like, well, does it look different? And I said. You know, one thing that I liked or the idea that I liked from him is that he could fake his sidestep to the right three, draw that big to his body, pass off of it, and then cut in front of the big, get the ball back. So you're beating it with motion instead of beating it with his handle. And he did that. Like he got into the the mixer a lot there and used that into four on three situations so they could get into driving kick. Um, he got a little bit more comfortable going to his left. So if he gets a switch like a guy against Nick Claxton, forcing him left, he can take a one dribble and go to the left and get that off. So, and, and he's just so cerebral. Like he mm-hmm. does, he knows that it doesn't have to be him that beats it. So like if he makes the read in anticipation of a scram switch, a lot of times, like he's already processing that when miles Turner goes to roll, Oh, that guard's going to run to the corner and the big's going to come. And there's going to be a window of space for me to throw the skip pass. And Oh, by the way, I can throw the skip pass from 30 feet and I'm going to look over there while I'm doing it. So, like, he just trusts his teammates enough, too, that he knows, like, I don't have to be a scorer in this situation, but he's shown that he can be because he had two game winners last year. So, um, I think, like I said before, I think that one of the things that's really good out about him, and I'm not going to say he's an all-time great player like Jokic, but two things they have in common is they're both very pass-first, and the longer that Jokic has to think about a matchup, he's probably going to figure his way out of it. So like when they were in the bubble and they get in like a 3-1 hole, it was almost to his advantage because the longer he has to, you know, do his supercomputer thing, he's probably going to find a way out. Tyrese is very similar. That if you watch in certain games that he struggled, then you'd watch him see that same coverage again. And it's like, oh, he just did that this time. So like Jaden McDaniels gave him a lot of problems in the first game because Jaden's kind of a rare defender who can duck under a screen and still surge out. And it's kind of to your benefit to duck under strangely against Tyrese, despite how good of a pull-up threat he is, because he doesn't he doesn't think shoot first. Like he he thinks to pass. So if you do that and you still have the link to close to him, like that was the only team that I've really seen do that, in part because Jaden's one of the few people who can do it. But also like just to avoid Rudy Gobert, he was rejecting a lot of screens and then Jaden can match him step for step. They play Minnesota again, and now it's like, oh. I'm just not going to reject that there and we'll get into another action. We'll layer it here and I'll get the ball there. And it's like, he's just thought his way through it. So 
I, I don't discount his ability to continue to elevate his game is the way I would put it, because I've seen him do it enough in game in matchups that you don't know what he's going to have to be bringing back the next time. That's the big difference. I think with there's probably only two or three players in the NBA who, and Jokic the most above anybody else, but it's like even, even LeBron in 2012, he could like that, that mid that 18 foot jumper he hit in the finals was like the big watershed. It's like the, the paint was packed shooting. Isn't as you know prevalent in the NBA at this point in time. And everything came down to like this came around the screen, stop pull. And he made it. And that was like, it just broke everything down late in the game. That isn't that great an option, but it was the option that was necessary. Nikola Jokic is a player who, an 18-foot jumper isn't really the advantage you create on offense. Nikola Jokic, on how good he is against post-defense, on how good a shooter he is in space, and how like he's just one of the best passers to ever grace the league, will find the advantage on a given play. And that can leave the game in the hands of guys like Jamal Murray, who he had, what, like 26, 7, and 6 on the way to winning the finals, right? It, it becomes all about the other players. And Tyrese Halburn strikes me in a similar vein to Jokic is that, you know, you're going to throw stuff at him. You're going to put him into uncomfortable positions sometimes. But as time goes on, a player who just finds the advantage. And what do you think about the framework of the Pacers to help him, you know, because like a guy can do things on the floor, but eventually the ball is going to reach other hands. How do you feel about the framework around him as it's developing? I'd like to answer that again once I know what happens with Buddy Heald. Sure. Because the Pacers, when they played, when Tyrese and Buddy played together, they narrowly outscored opponents, which says something because they weren't a good team last year. They got absolutely wrecked in the minutes when Tyrese played without Buddy, and they got wrecked in the minutes when Buddy played without Tyrese. So in part, when I said like what the Pacers and the Raptors do in transition is completely different, it's because the Pacers are pushing off of makes. So like I did this piece on hit ahead passes and like what Tyrese was doing with team USA and being like, he's been doing this with the Pacers all year, but like, he's just, he's very idiosyncratic. And that like, if you, if when it's a make, he's, he's looking over his shoulder, he doesn't stare down the impound passer. He's already taking a peek over his shoulder to see where Buddy's going, to see where his teammates are, so that when he gets the ball, he's already ready to fling it to the other end. But like when you're when you're aiming to find advantages in transition, typically, you know, what are transition defenses geared to take away? The nearest defender takes the ball, the furthest defender takes the rim, the next nearest defender plugs the ball side hit head pass. And that's where Buddy is so important because now you want to play early and opposite. So you want to get the, the ball shifted twice. You're going to outlet it. Tyrese is going to have it. And then you throw that diagonal pass to Buddy at the 45. Your aim on a two-side fast break is to generate two closeouts. If Buddy's catching it at the 45, he's going to draw somebody rushing to him. And now it's just one extra pass to the corner. The Raptors don't really have a way to do that in transition. And I question to a degree, like as good as Bruce Brown is at shoving the ball down opponents' throats when he was catching, you know, water polo style passes from Jokic. And as electric as Obi Toppin can be at outrunning entire teams, both of them are going to be fits in this regard with Tyrese, but both of them take more of their shots in transition as twos than threes. So if you don't have the same spacing and you're exchanging Nemhard and Neesmith and, and Heald for Obi and Bruce and Ben, 
that that's a little bit different. And that's why so much is going to be on Ben's shoulders. Cause I didn't even really talk about the fact that like Ben shot 31% mm-hmm. on catch and shoot jumpers next year. And that's kind of like his biggest hurdle because yep. he's, he has such a deceptive first step. He's so good at reading and knowing, you know, how much of a shimmy do I need to use? But he's very much like, I'm going to jab to my right. I'm going to put the ball down on the floor at the left. He loves to rip and go to his left. But he, I tracked every single pass that he made that was a skip pass to the right side of the floor or that was a kick out to the right side of the floor from the left. He never made one with his left hand. Yep. So depending upon what the spacing is around him, I think there's going to be more incentive to load up on his drives because his pass rate on drives is like 18%, like the fifth lowest rate in the NBA. So he's he's confident in ways both good and bad like you love the fact that there'll be four people in the lane and he believes you know obstacles are opportunities but they're usually opportunities for ben not opportunities for teammates so he's got to get better at passing at the rim and i think that that's going to be harder when the degree of full closeouts that Toppin and brown draw is not the same as as nemhard and buddy and neesmith so that's already going to be there. And like, that's something that Tyrese needs. Cause I, I, I still believe in the fit between Ben and Tyrese in terms of Ben as an off ball scorer, like run veer, run a ball screen for Tyrese and set a pin down for Ben. Ben's going to curl that and he's going to get to the rim. Very effective action. As long as his defender is trailing it behind him. And, you know, but he's got areas that he's going to have to grow out in order to, to match with Tyrese. And I do think the coverage is going to change. Like if the shot isn't falling, he's going to see more short closeouts. And then his tendency is he doesn't, he's so geared to catch and drive. He doesn't shoot the shots that come to him, catch and shoot and flow. So then it becomes a double clutch. And I think that contributes to why his shooting percentage currently is what it is. But to answer your question, the context around Tyrese, I think the spacing around the pick and roll is going to be different for him. And they already were not a very good half-court offense. The Pacers and the Raptors were only like one spot away from each other in half-court offense, again, for different reasons. But the spacing is going to is going to be different, I think. The big thing, the big difference between their approach on offense is that the Raptors just rebounded so much more. Like the Pacers, no offensive rebounds. Like they get one shot at it, they get the one possession, they shoot a really good percentage relative to a lot of other teams in creating like that shot and they have good shooters. That's why Buddy is such a swing, obviously. But it's like if other people get like 30% more possessions in those opportunities, like it's going to come around in a meaningful way. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of things left to be balanced. I love the point you made about Benedict Matherin. That's like if you're going to your left, and like that rip and go that he loves, of course, and the obstacles and all that kind of stuff. Teams, if you don't prove that you can make that left step, align the body, left-handed skip, or above the break, they know what's going to happen is you're going to have to twist on your axis and you're going to start either doing the push pass or throwing ducks, neither of which can reach the opposite corner or above the break. Like you just can't beat weak side zones then. Like you just, yeah, about the only way he makes the pass is if he's dribbling left and the help comes and he can euro step in front of it, sidestep, and then make what you're saying, the push pass with the right and the pass accuracy. A lot of times the receiver's having to catch it and adjust their body before yep. they even get into the shot or he's having to abort his dribble instead of making it in motion. Like that's a big difference between him and Nemhard. Nemhard is actually better at throwing one-handed passes with his left with the velocity than he is with his right. So, um, and he's definitely going to do it in motion and find that corner. And that's the thing, like, I think some of it with Ben is feel, but some of it is clearly skill because when he's on the right side of the floor, which isn't his preference for driving sake, 
he will make some of these passes, even a jump pass under the basket, maybe to the opposite corner. So the accuracy still isn't really there. It's not like when you watch Grady Dick, right? Like this was one of my favorite things during Grady Dick's yep. pre-draft process is that he has quite a bit of flexibility under that basket. He can jump pass and make that. And he's very good at reading the next chain. You don't see a lot of guys who are like, and not that Grady's a stationary shooter, but somebody that you're going to park in the corner, you're going to put the ball on the floor, get under the basket, see that the corner man's going to shift to the, you know, the 45 weak side zone is going to shift to the corner. And then he's going to make that with his left hand to the 45. Like I can't even dream of Ben doing that. Like I've, I've literally never seen it. It's, so, it's, a, it's a huge deal because not only like everything on defense is about being able to make reads. If you have to bring the ball to two hands, that's a read you give the defense that they can brace now to make the jump to the corner or, you know, above the break. And also on top of that is like if you're not putting significant velocity, which Ben usually isn't, especially you're moving left, trying to pass back right, you're going to throw a duck and you can even like use your eyes and your body to try and beat that read. But still, they'll have time because of the lack of velocity to catch up to the play. And if you've misplaced the pass, it's more time for the defense to catch up. And that means that like you might get stuck in a situation that a lot of players get stuck in, that when you attack closeouts, teams know which side of the floor they get to load on. And like you can't switch the play. And you and that means that the defense gets to stay a little bit more conservative in their, in their shell. And that means that the advantage, the big gaping, like, advantage closeout that was created for you you can't create like this the chart down with all these different scenarios that can keep happening it's just like rote and this happens to a lot of guys it's like pump put it down going left corner same side corner or like going up with you know either right or left hand at the rim but it's just like you get stuck in that one or two options thing and these little skills are what changes that which also is an appeal to as you mentioned Nemhard. Little skills make the player like they like they really do pacing in the pick and roll, finding out, you know, you know, if you play a little slower, maybe you get the step up more than other guys do. If you get the step up, maybe the 45 cut is a little bit better. Maybe that collapses the weak side zone. Maybe there's more passes out to the corner. Now it's like this is the stuff that makes the players and just. Yeah, that's a, I love the point you make about Matherin, like those little things. I want to combine those two players into one person. I want Andrew not to have an 8% free throw rate on drives. I want him to, when he has the rim avenue there, to actually take it. Instead of using you know, the pound dribble, hip swivel back to the fadeaway, I want him to go the rest of the way of the rim. And I know the Pacers have harped on him sometimes about his rim pressure. Um, that's, that's definitely a thing that stands out there. Cause I get, we just, I just named a lot of limitations that Ben has. And at the end of the day, he averaged, you know, five free throw attempts per game. Only five rookies have done that in the last yep. five years. We're talking about Zion, Luca, Trey, Paolo Bancaro and Benedict Matherin. When you're in that company, the Pacers haven't have a player that can do that since like, you know, since I've been covering the team, honestly. So it's definitely a skill that he still has. And that's with the way people are guarding him. I think it's going to get more exaggerated during his second season, I think people are going to have more film, more recognition of some of the things he's doing because it was already showing up in summer league. But Beal used to be in a similar thing, not at the same level, and he had a little bit more shooting gravity, obviously. Beal was always a guy who underperformed his shooting talent and sneakily was just like attack closeouts. That that was what drove the start of Beal's career. Everyone thought he was like this wonderful shooter out of Florida. He was he got comps to Clay, right? Like all this kind of stuff. And everything that Beal did was about being able to finish with both hands at the rim and being able to sneakily 
extend his dribble and take that last step to the baseline to swing it to the the opposite side of the floor and it's like this is what makes the closeout dangerous if Matherin can make these changes he's going to just obliterate this stuff for like a decade yeah because I mean Ben's Ben's really good at alternating stride lengths and Ben's really good at the drag your toe he can really throw off the rhythm of guys. That's why he's fairly effective in transition, despite the fact that he's not always the one running to the arc. Now, I do think that role will slightly change if, like I said, if Buddy's not out there and you're having to have, you know, Bruce and Obi run to the corners or one of them's running pipe to pipe, then it changes. But um, that's where Ben Ben succeeds. And I think some of the three-point percentage, too, can be explained. And this showed up at Arizona, is that Arizona ran a lot of set actions like, you know, pick and roll with an exit screen where it was very clear that this is a play for Ben. Ben knows I run to the corner. I go out, I catch it. And I thought at the time, Oh, this is noisiness because he's making more difficult threes off of screens, but then he's missing unguarded threes. Surely this will normalize. And then it continued last year. And it was kind of the same story when it's a play that you're running for Ben and he knows this is the shot. He shoots it in rhythm. And that helps his percentage when he's catching it in spot up situations. And he has to read what the closeout is. That's when I said he's so he's so wired to catch and drive and will double clutch that I think that that impacts what the percentage is. So I don't even think it's necessarily his mechanics that are holding him back. I think sometimes it's just the overall feel and read of what the defender is doing. Reading defenders is very important. You know, get that that chunking going on. Figure out what you're seeing. Quick decisions. Um, do you want to answer some questions from your fans? My fans. <laughs> oh my gosh. How does that sound? I mean, I've answered probably like 40 mailbag questions this week. What's what's some more? I'm excited for what Raptors fans want to ask me. There was Raptors questions in my mailbag on a Pacers blog. So let's go. Caitlin, I told you. The people love you. They've migrated over, you know? This is yeah, this is the the number one thing is like this is why I bother you to do it is because people really love you. This You're is, not bothering me to do it. Uh, bygones, bygones, agree to disagree, etc. The one I want to, I want to give you the one you don't like first. How do you? How, <laughs> I'm so afraid about what this is going to be. Would Caitlin trade Barnes for Lillard if you were the GM? We'll do basketball stuff later, but I want to put you in this position. I think. I mean, are we? I, I mean, I guess I'll ask you for some insight before I answer that. Are we in agreement that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense from Portland's standpoint unless you have a third team trade to be trading for OG and Gary Trent Jr.? Because that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Correct. And from the Raptors' point of view, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. You cannot convince me that Scotty has been even close to OG's impact. And just OG is a wonderful fit next to Dame, and you would have to prioritize that. Now, of course. You I mean, know, he has one year left on his contract. That just doesn't make sense from Portland's perspective. Yeah. Like, and are you convincing OG to resign there? I don't, I kind of doubt it unless you're rerouting OG to like Phoenix and maybe you're getting Aiton back from Phoenix. Like there's a lot of machinations here. I don't know them all, but I so, guess they're just asking me about Scotty in particular. So I think, I think basically the meaning of this and uh, apologies to the person who asked, but I think the meaning of this is like weighing the potential stardom of Scotty versus the, if Dame reports the returns you'd get in the near term or in the present from Dame. And I think it's like a question about how do you value Scotty at his current state? Rather, like it's not that much about Dame, I don't think. This is about like, is it worth it to lose Scotty? 
I mean, I think they've kind of locked themselves into at least sussing this out, right? Because they've already, I don't want to say shopped Pascal, but they've already listened to what the offers for Pascal were. So if they don't like like the young assets for Pascal that they could build with Scotty, then your next avenue is the other timeline, send Scotty somewhere to build with, you know, the Pascal timeline. So I think that Dame fits all of that quite well. And I think that the other avenue of it too is, is how confident are you in the other contenders in the Eastern conference? Like, do you just think Milwaukee and Boston are infallible? Because I don't, I don't think that I do. I think I have questions about both teams. So if you think that, you know, in this age of parody, Hey, we give ourselves a chance here. I think I probably would. I think yep. I probably would. I am. I haven't been on record saying this, but I I would do a Scotty package for Dame. Whoa, 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 whoa! Both of us just said what a fake trade was that we would both do. This is a first, I believe. Um, but yeah, I think it is like it's it's a. This question is totally about what you think Barnes will be in the future, and like, can you is future Barnes somebody you can miss out on? Because if future Barnes is like for sure an All NBA player then you wouldn't do this. There's no yeah. way you'd risk this. But if you think he's more so in the vein of like all-star maybe a few times, maybe a little bit less, then you would. Of course you would for one of the best guards in the league. Like you just, you got to go for it. And the Raptors don't have to go for it. And I'm perfectly happy to see what Scotty becomes. And if they lean into it this year, giving him a lot of possessions just to like battering ram his way through. So you figure stuff out about what he's going to be. Hell yeah, I'll cover that. I'm looking at a lot of data right now and film right now, trying to figure out how it might look. But I don't love the data that I've seen. Yeah, the data. I is- like Scotty Barnes, the player. I don't. I don't really like the idea of Scotty Barnes, the point guard. But and we clipped, shall see. Clipped Twitter. <laughs> um, but you, you and I, two people who are going to get snide responses for this maybe, but two people I want to who... back up and say, I like the idea of Scotty Barnes, the hub. I like the idea it's of Scotty great. Barnes, the hub. I just, this is something there's a, there's a delineation here. Yes. And what we're talking about. This is something I've gotten a lot of snide responses about, about not viewing Scotty as a point guard. I mean, and this is the thing where I'm like, I like having you on here because guess what? NBA players, NBA coaches, they like our work. We've been validated, but there's always like the snide responses that are like, we haven't watched just an insane amount of these players and like try and figure it out. I'm harping. I shouldn't be harping. I watched every pick and roll Scotty ran with Pirtle last year. Same. What do you think? Well, I mean, what I said on the prior pod, I think part yeah. of the problem is, is that most of the coverages you're going to see under the switch, which is going to require a lot of physicality with Scotty, which he's capable of doing some of that. Mm-hmm. But like, there's just limitations. That's why I said that with Dame. When you're constantly seeing an under, there are ways to work around it. But it's not the same as like TJ McConnell seeing an under where he's making himself a threat and can still induce an over with his handle. Scotty's not doing those same types of things. So like if we're looking at Sabonis, like there was a point in time. I mean, I have an article that you can't find a link to anymore, but it did exist at one point in time that was that was called an analysis of DeMontis Sabonis doing point guard things. There there were point guard things that Sabonis did, especially n- not too far from when he got traded to the Kings and that he was actually the person bringing up the ball and 
triggering the initial action. So was that always with a ball screen? No, although sometimes he was getting a ball screen at the elbows and then triggering into, you know, whatever was going to come there. There were some really impressive ones where he would get a ball screen at the elbow, pass it off to the wing, and then flip around and be the roll man all in the same possession. There was some of that, but a lot of it was more so like if he was bringing it up, it's automatically into delay. It's automatically into a DHO. And I don't really look at delay as being like a primary initiator action. Almost as if it were kind of hinges on a big man running five out offense with like, you know, it's not typically point guard stuff, even, even in it's like inception or design. I think delay is. Well, I mean, delay in and of itself, let's talk about what it is. It's a trailer. Like there's an initial ball handler delaying the ball back to the big and tossing it to them to go do something. So there is a shift, initial shift of the defense before the big gets the ball. So like I, I'm, I like the idea of Scotty running DHOs with the various, whether that's Grady, whether that's Gary Trent Jr. Like I, I like DHO offense. I just don't necessarily like the idea of him being the full-time point guard. And that's why I do question how long that lineup will last before they ultimately are like, if, if they don't make any other trades, if this Dame thing doesn't happen and it's like, okay, we're going to go ahead and start Schroeder because we got to have somebody who, you know, is doing more of the point guarding. Yeah. Even though he sees a lot of unders too. But, but if they don't get Dame, we get the data, way more of it. They're going to yeah. figure things out. And there's always, always a chance that a player finds a unique way to success. New advantages show up and they can succeed more often at the traditional ones and make the film and the data of the past uh, irrelevant. And my hope is that Scotty, be it here or wherever, First contract, second tr- contract, third contract, just is Hall of Fame, is doing unique things. That would be the coolest. But I think I would I would be fine if, in theory, like it's Scotty going out one way and Dame coming in the other. Yeah, I'd cover that team. Halfway. Okay, but conceptually, conceptually, question. How do you feel? What are your thoughts about Dame? I'm going to make it ugly for four years straight. <laughs> I'd love to ask him about it in person. That's that I made a joke about this. That tweet was one of my favorite tweets I think I've ever seen yesterday when I read that. That that would be like my first question if nobody I'm sure somebody else would ask it but like let's say Dame does get traded to the Raptors and it's the the press conference where somehow they get him there, you know, even though he's going to make it ugly and he's like holding up the Raptors jersey or whatever. I say, "Yeah, there's a lot of reports that say you're not going to play basketball." Thoughts? Are you going to make it ugly? What's going on here? Um, How do you make it ugly? So yeah. imagine the creative ingenuity that's required every day to wake up afresh and be like, I'm going to make this ugly in a whole new way. You know what's funny? Some people who don't play basketball just live normal lives do that. They live ugly little lives and they just <laughs> they make they make things really ugly. But I'm, I'm guessing he would probably like throw the jersey at the crowd put Masai in a headlock and be like, okay. would, he take the, would he take the Raptors championship trophy and drive it around the parking lot? Like he's in a Seinfeld episode too. Yeah, exactly. There's yeah. He it's, it's not like, Oh, I'm not going to report. He's just constantly pulling pranks and doing hijinks. An agent of chaos. Exactly. Well, on the flip side of that, do you have any concerns about what happens if none of this happens and how people handle that coming back, knowing that they pursued Dane? Oh, who, who no. cares? Who cares? This team, is is the dynamic already poor enough that it just doesn't matter it's up in the air and it like it can't get more up in the air it's up in the air i mean last last season was 
in the middle of the season, Masai came in to talk to, and I hope people don't get defensive about this because Masai did this with Kyle Lowry, was like, no, the way you're like, how you're approaching your career isn't correct. Like make, make better decisions in how you do this, like apply, apply different methods to how you try to improve. He did that with Scotty. Like Scotty has had, you know, a bit of controversy. It's not like an indicator of a bad guy. It's just sometimes the, how the player wants to improve and go about it is different than what the franchise envisions. The the Raptors, like the rubber met the road on that. They've Scotty has had his approach questioned. If he was like involved in a trade talk, which the reports are that he hasn't been like that, they, you know, say unilaterally say no. And then OG who won't sign the extension and it's a, you know, an expiring contract. If he's like, Oh, you guys are thinking about trading me. He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't be like that because he's like, we'll see if I'm here. You know, it's just, I don't expect any blowback from this. A team that has been in flux continues to be in flux. I don't, I don't think there's anything um, radical, any radical outcomes of that. Unless it's like Thaddeus Young, who is like, you guys guaranteed my contract for 8 million instead of cutting me for 1 million. Maybe you could trade me. I'd like to travel a little more this year or something like that. I don't know, but that's that's kind of where I'm at. This is a team in flux, so they've been inviting conversations forever. And chiefly among those conversations has been Pascal Siakam, who if anybody were saying like, hey, what's going on here? It would be Pascal. And this conversation is one that's like, you said you want to sign an extension in Toronto. Here's Damian Lillard. Maybe you get the extension. Like the guy who would be the most upset over this summer would probably be the happiest of these conversations. I'm rambling at this point, but you get my meaning. I just I'm sure. realized how much Dame being traded to Toronto would impact um, teams that want to trade for Pascal and OG. It's just a thought that just popped into my head. Hunting grounds, you know? Okay, here's, here's a question from Evan. I'm going to keep taking up more <laughs> of your time. Evan Gualberto, dear friend of both of us, better all-time hit-ed passer when their careers are over, Kyle Lowry or Tyrese Halberton. A better question, if Evan were to make a compilation of both, who would do better numbers? And which lefty has the better bag, Pacers, Thad, or Samson Folk? Uh, free play. Take that question however you please. Well, the first one, I haven't watched enough of Kyle's to know how many was Kyle throwing against a set defense versus, oh, you know, wow. it's off, it's off a stop. He, See, this he is going to put them neck and big, neck then. Big three-quarter court guy. The defense is back. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, just there isn't enough attention to detail at meeting a guy at the three-point line to start the battle for position. There's a slip to the rim. There there it goes. Like, Surge was on the opposite end of a lot of these. And since you've watched a lot of Raptors at my behest, thank you, over the past couple of years, you saw a lot of hit-aheads from Pascal to OG from Scotty to OG and Pascal yeah. from Pascal to Scotty. Um and those were against set defenses too, early work. Um, Kyle did that all the time as well. So lots of hit aheads. Some of it was at Bjorkren's behest as well. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that would put them pretty close to head to head then because Tyrese, like hit aheads per 100, was like second in the NBA to James Harden last year. And he had a lower turnover rate on them than James did. So I'll let people take those numbers for what they will. But like I said before, like it's just, it's how quickly he processes it because that's my favorite thing to watch. If people watch a Pacer game, 
watch himself practically give himself whiplash when an opposing team makes a shot because he's going to be he's always taking a peek he doesn't waste any time he wants to play fast that's a real credit that is something that I think is a real credit to Rick Carlisle because in the first 26 games when Tyrese came over you could see that this is how Tyrese wanted to play and they did it for like four games then Malcolm Brogdon came back and then their transition frequency went back down to like the bottom 10. And I was like, is this going to be an issue? Is this going to be a thing? And last year they ranked second in time to shoot top five in transition frequency. They definitely molded and actually had an identity around their best player, which is something they never, I think both of these teams have this in common. I don't think the Raptors roster has ever been built with Pascal Siakam in mind. And the Pacers roster was never built with DeMontis Sabonis in mind either. Like they were just very good players existing in those contexts. This is very much a team that's, you know, Tyrese is our guy, which is a change and a nice thing to see. Yep. And the Raptors are wondering currently, do we fully lean into bridging the gap that Scotty is the guy we build around, or do we do it more of a wholesale? We have Scotty, we have Grady, we have a prospective pick in the future, we have whatever comes back if they trade guys, like maybe Pascal or OG. Are they trying to? Like even the Thunder did this, right? Even when it was obvious that Shea was going to be in MVP talks, eventually the Thunder were still doing like the humming and hawing about like, no, we're just collecting guys. And Shea is like the oldest and, you know, and it was like, really? You guys aren't just saying it's Shea, Shea, Shea. Um, Scotty isn't as undeniable. Well, I guess it'll be his third year, so he'll have a chance to do what Shea did. Probably not, though. Um, I don't think Scotty is as undeniable as a prospect or, you know, the early impact of his career Shea is. But um, even guys like Shea weren't built around from the very start. And you could argue, actually, that Shea isn't really built around, that the Thunder are still just like compiling stuff. So not many guys have the blessing of being built around. Demonis, it's cool that it happened the way that it did in um, Sacramento. Uh, the other part of this, uh, who who do you think... Uh, the compilation would do more numbers, Tyrese or, or Kyle Lowry? I think this is a question about the strength of the Raptors fans, like bumping up a, a Kyle Lowry video or something like that. Yeah, I think that it would probably, if, if yeah, if you made it during Kyle's heyday in Toronto, I think it would be Kyle over Tyrese if I had to guess. But currently, I think Tyrese probably does higher numbers. I, I don't think a ton of people are typing in like Kyle Lowry highlights. I was very surprised, though, at how many people were surprised by watching Tyrese do that with Team USA. Like, that's an indicator of how familiar you are with his game if you didn't, like, if you didn't realize, like, I didn't know this was an aspect of his game, that he's, you know, you can just throw the ball ahead and he's going to find moving targets. So I think that kind of probably speaks to it a little bit. I think uh, most people are surprised when they actually watch players because most <laughs> people don't watch players. They, uh, they're mostly looking at, uh, stat lines and maybe a highlight if the NBA acquiesces and tweets one out of Tyrese Halliburton, I suppose. Um, the last question, undoubtedly, Thad, a uh, much better bag than Samson Folk, it, like infinitely better. I and can say a lot of things that you're going to want to edit if I say them. So, well, let's just skip that it. process and we'll go on to this question from the boy. I've been extremely TJ McConnell pilled for years, and every time I see the Pacers, it feels like, aside from Halliburton, he's always the straw that stirs the drink. Is he genuinely that important, or as a Raptors fan, am I just starved for good or even marginal backup guard play? Okay, you've got the floor. Yeah, TJ, 
one thing that like you take Tyrese off the floor, TJ clearly is not Tyrese as a pull-up threat or as a shooter, but he wants to push the pace in a similar manner. So their identity isn't only tied to Tyrese. TJ is also very high in hit ahead passes. TJ also wants to motor the ball. And I think an underrated thing about him is if I if I could, you know, log into the secret synergy codes and see what the breakdowns of like points per possession are on specific plays that the Pacers run. If I had to venture a guess when they run push or like pistol for TJ, it's going to be very high because I think, I think clear back when I was on bouncing around with you and Evan, I had written a piece about TJ. Like he, he performed very well in the Bjorkren system. Like if anyone fit what Bjorkren did, it was TJ McConnell because it was hyper aggressive defense and it was, you know, they played quickly it didn't really match the roster. They played, they had a high pace. And then he put in this pet play where it's basically like, imagine, you know, a down screen for Buddy. Buddy gets it and he flips it right back to TJ. TJ turns the corner with an empty corner. TJ gets lower than his guy and is can pretty much always turn the corner out of pistol. And it's what his handle is too. Cause like what I said earlier, like he's good enough where, you know, he can reject a screen on an empty side of the floor and then get back to it and then force that defender to go over. So some of it for him is when he's hitting the shot in the non-restricted area of the paint at a very high clip, which like at the end of last year, he was hitting that at like over 50%. He's very good. And he, he does throw the strength for the Pacers to the point where like, I'll let people interpret this as they will. They're playing the New York Knicks. TJ had 18 and 12 and 22 minutes. He did not play the final six minutes of that game. He also did not fi- play in the final two games of the season. So I think that will tell you what he contributes to winning. Can I ask a really selfish question? Mm-hmm. Do you expect the Raptors to just completely annihilate the Pacers last season after stealing what the Knicks, the Knicks info on the Pacers? <laughs> I made one joke about that. You were gone. There was a lot of things I wanted to tell you about that while you were gone. And I made one joke and was like, leaked playbook, ISO. And there were so many Nick fans that were mad about this. I'm like, it's just a reality. Like, I'm not criticizing. Like, I know you had a good offense. You ran a ton of isolations. Like, it's just what it is. But I guess, like, if people do really do want my opinion, I don't really care about the lawsuit aspect of it. And I'm not going to speak for the Knicks. Because no, I, I, you don't actually have to. No, I, I am going to answer this part, though. Like, for Pacer fans who want to hear my opinion on this, because I haven't shared it. The Knicks had the Pacers' entire playbook. The Knicks. The Raptors did not steal this from the Pacers. Steal this from the Pacers. They took it from the Knicks. So my bigger question is, why didn't the Raptors already have this information? Like, I wonder if they did. Like, what I think happened... You think it was that person's scout? They had done the scout on the Pacers, so they were basically I, taking their own work? That is... I feel so strongly about that and this is why i made the joke that like the raptors stole and it was what like three thousand files the raptors stole the equivalent of like what lewis and i share between each other in a season covering well, and also remember that three thousand files on like synergy or second spectrum could yes. be like that's not that's not that many files in reality no. like me watching all of scotty and Jakob's pick and roll possessions is going to be several hundred right there mm-hmm. like so that's what we're talking about. But like, I mean, I don't know what else was included with that. If you're talking like 
you know, there's analytics codes or like proprietary stuff that the team had an attachment to that. I'm not going to comment on that. I'm just saying that from the Pacers perspective, I don't fear any um, competitive disadvantage because a team knows what they run. If they want to find that, like people can go check out my Patreon. I write about <laughs> hand signals and stuff that they're running all the time. It's available to you for free. Or if the Raptors want to hire me and just want to know what all the plays are, I can I can tell them. This was um this was like the funny. This is why I think there was a bigger response to that from people who don't know like the scouting process. And it's the, it's a lot of the same people who, when you write something or if I write something or do like a video breakdown on a set that the Raptors run. And it's like, this is what they do. This is how often they've been running it lately. This is what it looks like. This is why it works. And people are like, why are you giving away the team's plays? And it's like, everyone has the team's plays so much so that a third party Synergy has all the team's plays, and other teams are just using that. This is hardly even something you'd consider the Knicks, only insofar as they paid the fee, the subscription fee, for what Synergy had. And so that's kind of where I'm at with it. But I did, um, since the Pacers were a team and the Nuggets were a team that was included, I had to ask to be selfish because I think it's funny. Because you want to put me under fire for more things that I say yeah. that you think. This, but this I verbalize a, them. This is a comfy position and not one that you put me in when I was featuring on your podcast, but just asking people like hard questions. Question. Just for the listener's sake, in case you didn't see that, I asked Samson questions like, who's your favorite pacer to watch? Yeah, I had a good answer to that. I was really happy with it. Here's something that's really in the vein of Caitlin Cooper. If the Spain set was a popsicle flavor, which flavor would it be? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I'll have to pick one from the Outshine compendium. I guess I would say like Spain is continuing to to evolve and that you need to be better at masking it. Like it can't continue to take on the same flavor. So like a wrinkle that I would like to see more teams use because so many teams switch the guard screens as their means for defending it. The big hops around, you switch the guard screens is I'd like to see the back screener instead of leaking to the wing, the back screener leaks to the corner and then the corner man steps up to set a corner pin in for that guy because it's way more ground to cover. So it's adding spice to the Spain action. So I'm going to go with mango with tahine. We've, we're all used to the mango, but add the tahine. I was actually, believe it or not, I was thinking of giving that answer if it came to me just because I was so popular in Mexico when I was living there. Of course, it's like not a popsicle, really. It's like mango with tahini. It's just like have the actual mango. Yeah. But but have you yeah. had it in popsicle form? No. Have you seen my tweet about this? I don't think so. Oh, I think you have. I, I, I misspelled tahini like five times in the tweet, so that's pretty embarrassing. I had friends over for a dinner party in which I served them the mango with the popsicles. I texted them and made them give me responses to what they thought. I ate one of them. It was one of the most unsettling experiences of my life. (laughs) And not because of the flavor, but because like, I can't explain to you the sensation of having hot ice in your mouth. Like what happened after I took the first bite, I won't reveal on the podcast, but it was unsettling. Like, hmm. I wasn't ready for that, but that's what I'll say. The Spain was the mango with the heen. Good answer. Last question before we get out of here. From Raptor Moments, who his YouTube channel is like just a wonderful, absurd got ride through the little moments of the Raptor season. Um, his commentary is always layered in like a very, very good level of contextual analysis of uh i would say like 
Western politics. Like it's it's very sardonic, but it's it's coming from a very intelligent place. The 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 humor is awesome, and obviously it's done with the background of like funny raptor stuff happening. Just for anybody who is looking for like some comedic relief during the raptor season, or going back to watch you know comedic relief during the last raptor season. Anyway, one is Indiana a real place? Two. Are Hal Burton and Nemhard's quick and low Sean Marion-esque release points part of a trend for guards? We talked about this before the podcast, but Trey Young also fits into that very, very easily. The push, push shots. Yeah, the floor is yours. Is Indiana a real place? Is Indiana a real place? Classic well, coastal elitist, this guy. Raptor well, listeners... Moments. Let's just let you know that Samson a few times has acted like he might come here. And if he does, then he can tell you if it's a real place. I've been to Indiana. Just like you not... drove through the little tiny piece. Yeah, just the top corner when I was going to Chicago. But here's what I'll say. There's actual video evidence of Indiana many times on my Patreon. I just filmed a video of me at Notre Dame. There's a clip Yeah, but me. can we really believe that that's Indiana? You that think it's a deep be... fake? No, not a deep fake, but you could be in like one of those, you know how Disney, when they film their shows, they're in like this transparent bubble that green screens everything and they like build out sets like, you know, 80 feet out or I don't know how many square feet, but it could be one of those. All I'll say is if I was going to green screen it, I think I would make parts of it look a little bit more appealing because the problem with my videos are is that people are really only seeing like the dullest portions because when I get into the cityscapes, I have to pay attention driving. So we don't continue filming it. So we're really only filming it in like the plainest background aspect. So if it was fake in a green screen, I would make it look a lot prettier at parts that's not to say that i don't think that there's a pretty landscapes there are you just don't often see them in my videos but it is a real place i've lived here my whole life um this is where i learned about basketball so it is real come here the all-star games in february to anybody who's interested in finding out if indiana's real i i do we put on big events quite well indy's very walkable there's a lot of green spaces there's skywalks i think people would like it if they came but also i'm wondering if Indiana was a figment to elevate Pete Buttigieg's political career and aspirations. <laughs> this is like a, a 2019 conversation. There's things I could, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Peter Paul Montgomery Buttigieg. God bless him. Um, jump shots, low pickup points, push shots even. Do I think this is a trend? Yeah. I don't think it's a trend. I think that that's just where, I mean, Tyrese has talked about it. Like that's just where he was comfortable and people told him that he was going to need to change it in part because of what the base on his shot is. And they thought that was going to impact his ability to attack closeouts. And it really hasn't. It was funny. There was a Sixers game last year where the broadcast was really criticizing his shot attempt and being like, ah, that's just, that's not going to work in closing time against switches. And then like he's made two threes in closing time game winners. And it's been, it's been fine. So it does have a lower release point. The most I was going to say the most important thing about making shots is creating the separation. I was going to say making the shots. There's a lot of guys who create separation and just miss, you know, that's true. <laughs> Hitting them is the most important. I've aspect. noticed that you rarely miss in your performance art that you share. Well, that's I'm not going to put a miss now. Mostly I'm just but they're also easy shots. I'm on an empty court. Mo- everyone can just like 
even Joe Burrow, he's a quarterback for the the Bengals. I, he's great. He's obviously a super good athlete. But I saw a video of him just hitting like six jumpers in a row, like easy peasy. On an empty court, anyone can do anything. You know, I'm a wizard on an empty court, certainly. I don't think anybody can do anything on an empty court. So we're moving on to the parting shots. And I think it would be fun to, to get your final thoughts. And with one, uh, you know, very uh, leading question from me. Who who do you think uh, has a better record this year, the Raptors or the Pacers? And then we'll get out of here. Better question. I'm asking you one first. Sure. Who do you, what what do you think is more likely, the Pacers as a top twenty defense or the Raptors as a top twenty half court offense? Pacers. Like if you had to pick one. Pacers. As a as a top twenty defense. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where I would lean as well. And I think if that happens, then. But I think the Raptors will have a better record this year. Interesting. The only reason I bring this up, and this will be my parting shot, is I think it's relevant, is that both of these teams were in a similar position in that when they made the decision to hire Rick Carlisle and Nate Bjorkman is no longer the coach for human management and in, in my estimation, <laughs> um, grading reasons. And also um, relating to some of the on-court product and coaching the team that he wanted instead of the team that he had. We and would now, later learn that he learned these things at the Nick Nurse School of Coaching. The apple reattached itself to its, to the tree, as we know. But um, the point being, I have a point in bringing this up. So they hire Rick Carlisle, and the objective when that season started was that that they wanted that core to make the playoffs the goals were you know togetherness defense there's going to be new energy rick carlisle very famously coaches to his personnel and as it turns out tj warren was hurt so that core was never fully healthy but like i went into it thinking you know a change in coach this will change how the personnel are used you can likely see an improvement and as it turned out when the season started it was just, no, this core is actually stale and there's actually just limitations. You know, Sabonis wants to play out of triangle concepts. Rick Carlisle doesn't really want to. Lavert is very separatist from the offense. Malcolm Brogdon has limitations as a point guard. They can't do anything against switches. Miles Turner can't get the role that he wants. He needs to be a five defended by fives, and there's not really a means to getting that with the personnel that are here. There's a lot of parallels on the things that I just said to what some of the politics are currently surrounding the Raptors roster. And that's not really the way that I like to look at things. And I will say for anybody that leaves a comment saying, you don't know what Darko is going to run. You're right. I don't, I, I don't know what Darko is going to run. And I will say that in watching this film over the last few days, like very basic things, I would question from Nick nurse and be like, Hey, you know, if you're running an Iverson screen for Pascal Siakam to enter into empty side pick and roll on the other side of the floor, why is why is Scotty automatically relocating to the dunker spot? Because for instance, that's a very big communication that that's a play now for Pirtle and Siakam, but Pirtle's not a pop threat, so you're really not helping the spacing there. Versus like you know if it's the Pacers running it, they're not going to put Scotty in the read spot. They're going to lift him even though he can't shoot, so that you can reverse it into a secondary pick and roll. Those types of things. Like it's possible that Darko will look at some of that and be like, "Hey, a nip tuck here. We change a little bit of things here, and that set runs better." And you find enough of those little tiny edges that this that this works, and things are copacetic. That might happen. But I have personal experience where it's like at a certain point in time, maybe this has just reached its expiration. You don't know. I would I would very gladly like it for you and for Raptors fans after the season that you just had. If this 
goes really well and you have a better record and they're sniffing at the playoffs, like that would be the best outcome in my opinion, but I don't think it's guaranteed. So that's kind of where I land with it. Nothing's guaranteed in this life. I've learned. I know I'm supposed to like death and taxes, et cetera, of course, but maybe nothing. I just, I just think it's, it's tough to rely on a coach to completely change what, what just happened with a team. And I saw the Pacers make two coaching changes over two seasons with the same core and not achieve a better outcome. And in fact, it just kind of got progressively more stale. Like, you know, this isn't shifting things. I think the analogy that I like to use with coaching is it's kind of like a coach is a jockey. A horse wins a race. Players win a game, but I, but the jockey can certainly help or hinder the horse from crossing the finish line. And coaches a lot of times sometimes can be more responsible for the hindrances than the helps. Like the helps might still be more about the players. The hindrances might be more about the coach. This, and like, this, this is my favorite thing to talk about with Lewis because Lewis always he disagrees and pressures me on it. We have a contentious conversation. And then Evan will listen to it because I tell him, go listen to me say that coaching doesn't matter. And then <laughs> we have a good laugh about and it. And the thing is, is, I come from a coaching family. And like this is a conversation that I've had with my dad in the past. And my dad would say, like, I think the best coaches recognize that that's the case. Sure. So but that's that's basically what we talked about half the time. Not half the time, but a point we were considerate about making in that episode where we talked all about, you know, the framework of the Raptors offense is like whether Darko has designs on a certain play style or not, the personnel points you towards certain things. And it's teams are at their best when there's a marriage between team building, coaching and like on court style and the, you know, the personnel that has their skills and traits and all that kind of stuff being enhanced. But the Raptors still, because Nick Nurse, there were things that I wish he did differently. You highlighted one of them. The team was still leaning towards a lot of the inherent advantages they got. Nick Nurse, the personality stuff you mentioned, bye, see ya, starting fresh there. But as far as the play style, sure, Darko can be a wizard on some things, and hopefully he will be. The Raptors are really good in ATO stuff the past few years, by the way. We'll see. The personnel says do this stuff. And maybe they, you know, revolutionize basketball or something like that. But it points it points towards a few things. And we've seen a few of those things. So and eh. I would say too that if it doesn't change, like and it didn't under Rick Carlisle, that doesn't mean that moving on from Nick Nurse wasn't the right thing to right. do. And that that that's somehow on Darko or that he wasn't the right hire. I think that those two things can be mutually exclusive and that they, they already are mutually exclusive. So mm-hmm. I guess that's the way I would close it out. Yeah. That's um an hour and a half. This was the longest one of these by far. People are going to be so sick of us by the end of this. If they listen to the end of it, sick of me, certainly not sick of you. They got to listen to, you know, if somebody's listening to all these, they're listening to like 30 hours. And just an hour and a half of that is you. They're going to love it. So, and they, ugh, I talk too much. People are probably sick of it already. And now we're both wearing glasses. Well. That's a change. Because I can see the end of this podcast coming on. It's blurry at the start, but now crystal clear. Caitlin, I know you gave your parting shots, but would you like to plug your stuff or would you like me to do it in a way that uh, 
makes you <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, I will give my parting shot and say that I'm a subscriber of Raptors Republic. And that, as Samson said at the beginning of this, the podcasting is free. Hopefully I was listenable to this, but I, I will back and support what it, the quality of he and Lewis's work is. Um, I've said it before. I think that there's certain pieces that both of them have written that you're not going to find other places. And that's not just in the Toronto market. I don't think you're going to find them in other markets either. Not the combination of being able to go and ask the questions about the film, understand the film, and also write it in a highly creative way. Um, so I, I think that I'm very happy that I subscribe to it. I hope other people will make that choice too. Similar, uh, I subscribe to Caitlin's Patreon. And I do so because the work is not emulated at all. And it's not just a few pieces. It's every piece. It's a completely unique uh, thing that I hope someday makes its way into the Smithsonian so people can understand how, <laughs> how basketball has progressed over time. Because what what better way to catalog it than with Caitlin Cooper's writing. I pay for stuff I like on the internet. That is, you know, and I'm lucky to have, you know, like a few extra dollars of expendable income every month to support the people I appreciate. This is more than just the basketball market. Um, the internet is a monster that doesn't want to pay anybody. It's very consumer friendly. It eats everybody and churns them up and has been you know, held afloat by venture capital money, that stuff is drying up. If you want good writing, good talking, all that stuff supported, whether you think it's from me, from Caitlin, or from others, um, it, a lot of cases, people have to get paid. And it can be directly from consumer to labor. And that's what Raptors Republic is relying on, hoping for. And the same ethic is uh, exemplified by Caitlin as well. It's important to pay people for what they do. You don't have to do it, but this is our plea. Thank you to everybody for listening. And uh, Caitlin, thank you for always giving me uh, so much of your time. And of course, your insights, which I will take and run with. Good, good, good. Okay, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.